thank you, Kirk, and thank you, church, for singing. It has been a wonderful morning. And I want you to take your Bible and find Judges chapter 14 this morning, beginning in verse 1. God has a purpose for every soul in this room, for your soul. And if you will nurture your soul every day, not looking to the left or the right, but keeping your hand to the plow and walking in truth, the cumulative weight of your life will be glorious for all of eternity. Psalm 66, 16 says, Come and hear all who fear God, and I will tell of what he has done for my soul. So I want to start with just a little bit of a testimony about what God has done for my soul. I grew up without Jesus. I was as irreligious as anyone could possibly be, and I resisted anyone trying to invite me to church. In high school, a friend really kept leaning on me to go to his youth group, and one day he said, you need to come. We have a lot of fun, to which I said, I have a lot of fun not in youth group. He never invited me again. In one strange way, maybe that was good, because had my path to the pastor been sooner in life, I might have been exposed to some terribly liberal teaching and taken a wrong turn. Every Southern Baptist school and many evangelical schools in the 70s and the 80s rejected biblical inerrancy. I heard a story from one of the old lions in our convention. He's now deceased, but he went to a Southern Baptist seminary, and he said his Old Testament professor said of Abraham, you don't believe this man was a father of the faith, do you? Abraham was not a believer in Yahweh. He was a pagan about to sacrifice his son. That's what pagans did. And that pastor said he decided to resist every attack on the Bible he would hear in that school. When I got saved, I got an instant conviction about the inerrancy of this book. But it never dawned on me in 10,000 years that God would so drastically change my soul that I would become a preacher. In 1984, two people tried to set Tara and I up on a blind date. The first succeeded, but if two are trying, that kind of seems ordained. She's the best wife in the whole world, the most godly person I know. We've been blessed to raise three kids who follow Jesus. Praise God for that. My wife, my life, and yours too are gracious gifts from God. We found out I had kidney disease three months after we were married. I'm still alive and thriving and feel great. God never owed me one year, but he's given me 62. So life is pretty good. But I never had any thoughts or ambitions about becoming a preacher. So one Friday night in July of 1996, I walked in from a covered porch in our house. I'd spent a whole week reading the Bible without footnotes, and I don't even know how to put this into words. The Holy Spirit was there just supernaturally in that verse, just ex or in, in, that, in that porch, just supernaturally explaining verse after verse. That's all I did all week was read the book of Mark. He filled my soul, and he changed my soul. And that Friday night, it was about 10 o'clock at night. Everyone was in bed. I turned a light switch off, and for some reason, I said this out loud. I said, I'm called to preach this book. I mean, I just knew it, but I had no idea what that would mean. I waited a month to tell Tara because we bought our dream house two years earlier and less than that. So I ran out and flagged her down while she was on a riding mower. I worked up the courage, and now's the time. And I told her, and she said, I know you're called. I just wonder when you'd know. <laughs> and then she said, 
I'm with you wherever we go. Fired up the lawnmower and took off and left me standing there. <laughs> she said, I'm with you wherever we go. But it never dawned on me that we would go anywhere. Because I pastored bivocationally for three and a half years, a little country church. Those people will have massive rewards in heaven for enduring the first few years of my preaching. <laughs> You're, my wife laughed the loudest. One day, a pastor from a neighboring town came in and said, I want you to sell this place and come pastor with me. I didn't take it seriously at the time. I stuck the note in my pocket. But then God began to do a work in my soul and in Tara's soul. And we sold everything. And that's how I got into vocational ministry. I never heard of Tonganoxie, Kansas before 2006, but I'm sure glad I did. And someday the end of life will come, but as the Apostle Paul said, to live is Christ, to die is gain. My soul's been redeemed, my bags are packed. <laughs> See? <laughs> and when the day of death comes, I want to be able to say, God, the best I know, I lived out your purpose for my soul. And you want to be able to say the same thing. And that's a reason we're in this series entitled Caring for Your Soul. And we're repeating the following eight statements. You have a soul. It is uniquely you. It was created by God. It is your most important possession. It will exist forever, either in a place called heaven or a place called hell. Therefore, it is of the utmost value. So I want us to look at the life of Samson this morning because through his story, we'll learn more about our purpose and we'll especially learn how to avoid being knocked off that purpose. So look with me, if you would, Judges chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. Then Samson went down to Timnah and saw a woman in Timnah, one of the daughters of the Philistines. So he came back and told his father and mother, I saw a woman in Timnah, one of the daughters of the Philistines. Now, therefore, get me for her as a wife. Then his father and mother said to him, Is there no woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all of our people that you would go and take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me because she looks good to me. Now, the book of Judges, in fact, the entire Old Testament, point us to Jesus. Judges describes a cycle of Israel falling into sin, and then God sends a judge or a deliverer to rescue them from their sin, only for Israel to fall into a lower low of sin, and then God mercifully sending another deliverer. They were an undeserving people who could not save themselves from their enemies. One writer properly noted that the book of Judges could also be called the book of saviors. And in fact, Judges describes a day like ours. The last verse of the book summarizes it. It says, every man did what was right in his own eyes. And when people become that selfish, God gives them over to their enemies. Look again at verse 1. Now the sons of Israel, excuse me, I'm in, that's chapter 13. I gave you the wrong, uh, this is chapter 13, verse 1, I apologize. Now the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord, so that the Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. The Philistines were the perpetual enemy of God's people. So now God sends another deliverer in his mercy. This one was unique, and his name was Samson. So now look back, if you would, at chapter 13 this time in verse 1. 
The start of Samson's life points us to the start of Jesus' earthly life in a remarkable way. Verse 2, the angel of the Lord appeared to the barren wife. Verse 3, he told her she would have a child. Verse 5, the angel told her God had a special purpose for that child. He would deliver or save Israel from the hands of the Philistines. So God had this incredible purpose for Samson, but for the most part, he missed it. He never nurtured his soul, and as you read about his life, you can see that he just blew it time and time again. So the first thing we need to do is what Samson failed to do. Each one of us need to refocus on our purpose. Samson wouldn't stay focused on God's clear purpose for his life, and that's an issue that comes from his soul. He was out of control sexually. He lived according to the flesh. And the verse that sadly describes his life is verse 3 of chapter 14. He saw the Philistine woman who was attractive to him, and he said, get her for me because she looks good to me. No focus on God's calling for him, nor the good of other people. No concern about the health of his soul. Have you ever thought about why you exist? What is God's purpose for your soul, your very being? A couple of you have asked me that. And you might be thinking, well, Pastor, your purpose is to preach, but I don't know what my purpose is. But my purpose to preach is secondary. In fact, one of the very first things I learned was don't fall in love with preaching, fall in love with Jesus because the day will come when you can't preach. There are at least five parts that comprise God's purpose for the soul of every believer. There are probably more than that, and I'm not smart enough to catch them all, but these five are clear. First, God's purpose for our soul is to worship him. Now, in the book of Exodus, God instructed Moses to tell Pharaoh, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, says, let my people go so they may worship me. And as soon as they were free, God issued his Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. The first three deal with worship. You shall have no other gods before me. Number two, you shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. And the point of that was this, you shall not worship or serve them. Number three, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord thy God. And then in the New Testament, we learn we're to love Jesus with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's worship. And at his coming, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. This all has to do with worship. Remember, God exists to receive worship. We exist to render worship. And this is the point I want to make. God develops your soul when you worship. Jonathan Edwards was a great preacher in the 1700s, and he wrote about how dedication to worship affected his soul. He said it brought an inexpressible purity, brightness, peacefulness, and delight to my soul. But I want you to contrast that with what a secular novelist named David Wallace wrote in 2005. This man was not a believer, but his insight was remarkable. He said, everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship, and the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of a God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. 
He said if you worship money and things, you'll feel like you never have enough. You feel like you never will have enough. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you'll always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you'll die a million deaths before they grieve you. He said worship power and you'll end up feeling weak and afraid and you'll need even more power over others to numb you over your fear. Worship your intellect being seen as smart and you'll end up feeling stupid or a fraud and always on the verge of being found out. And yet, despite that amazing insight, he never followed Jesus and tragically killed himself three years after that address. God's purpose for our soul is to worship. Secondly, God's purpose for our soul is to make it more like Jesus. Romans 8.29 says he predestined us to become conformed to his image. We get the word metamorphosis from that word conform. God's amazing promise is to change our soul so we become more like Jesus. Now, we're made in God's image, but that image has been badly scarred. One writer said it was like a shell of a bombed-out building. You can tell the original design, but it's badly damaged. So salvation is the progressive restoration of that image. Philippians 1.6 says, He who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion in Christ Jesus. So we're being continually restored to Jesus' likeness, not by our effort, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. How does that work? By our own effort. And you say, now that's contradictory. Here's how it goes. Jesus rescued us from our sin. So we obey him not to be saved. We obey him because we are saved. And we can obey him because he gives us the indwelling Holy Spirit who empowers us to obey. He changes our soul so you can live in a way and I can live in a way we could have never lived before. I couldn't have preached when I was 30. The Holy Spirit was still developing my soul. And he does it in you too if you follow his leading. Jesus put it this way, apart from me, you can do nothing, not something, nothing. And if you feel like you're not where you should be, don't be discouraged. Just stay in the bucket. Time plus faithfulness equals Christ-likeness. And the day comes when he takes us home, and that's when we become fully like him. That's called glorification, and it's a promise of God. 1 John chapter 3 says, we know that when he appears, we will be like him. So God's purpose for our soul is to worship him. It is to become like him. It is to exercise spiritual gifts through the local church. Jesus created the church, and as he created the church, the Holy Spirit empowers believers in the church, and he gives every regenerate member supernatural gifts. We call them spiritual gifts. And you find those gifts lifted, listed in Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, and 1 Peter 4. Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, and 1 Peter 4. And their gifts of preaching and teaching and service and encouragement and giving and leading and mercy and much more. But as you nurture your soul, you'll discover those gifts and you'll discharge them unselfishly. It's not, I have this gift, I demand that we do this. It's, I have this gift, 
How can I discharge this to bless other people? Fourthly, his purpose for your soul is ministry. Ephesians chapter 2 says he created us for good works. I read a fantastic quote. It goes like this. Ministry is using the gifts God put inside me to do the work God set before me, to bless the people God put around me through the spirit God put within me. Now that's good. I'm going to add one phrase to that. Ministry is using the gifts God put inside me to do the work God set before me, to bless the people God put around me through the spirit of God within me, to point them to the Lord Jesus above me. If ministry is only good works, let's join a civic organization and do that. But our goal is to point people to Jesus. That's why we do things like make and pass out donuts on Tuesday morning. And there are a lot of people involved in that, and I am grateful to every one of you. And you know something? It's imperative that we put those donuts in a box that says West Haven. Now, why is that? Because if we don't get credit for it, Jesus will definitely not get credit for it. That's why we do the community carnival and ask you to wear the green West Haven Loves Tonganoxie shirts. If West Haven doesn't get credit, then Jesus doesn't get credit. Ministry is to point people to Jesus. And then lastly, God's purpose for your soul is to spread the gospel. This is probably the most missed purpose today. And there's almost no way to talk about personal evangelism today without accidentally taking a trip down Guilt Trip Highway. But it feels that way because it has become so foreign to us. If you feel like you're doing something adverse to a person by talking to them about Jesus, please know that's a trap of the evil one. No act is more loving, more caring, more compassionate, more kind than to talk to someone about their eternal soul and their need for Jesus. A loving Christian is one who shares the gospel. And friends, and I know that's a terrifying subject for some of you, but if you share the gospel, and I mean talk to someone about Jesus, if you share the gospel even just once, it's like you cross this Rubicon and the Lord does this extraordinary work in your soul. You get a hunger for it. He changes you completely. You can use tracts. You can use your testimony, the Roman road. I mean anything. Just trust that the Spirit will empower your best efforts. And yes, if you're around the same unsaved people, you can't continually talk about it. I mean, that's pious and it turns people away. But look for opportunities when the door opens. And I won't press into that anymore today because I've been doing this long enough to know that in your soul, this topic has either caused you to check out or you're cringing because you've never done it before. Satan raises up in irrational fear about evangelism. But if you want to take the next steps in the development of your soul, talk to someone where you live about Jesus. Now, let's just take an inventory of those five statements. Let's let this settle. God's purpose for our soul is to worship him. It is to become like him. It is to exercise our spiritual gifts unselfishly through the local church. It is to do ministry, and it is to spread the gospel. Don't miss God's purpose for your soul. 
Also understand that you're likely making more of a difference than you think. You say, well, Samson was a special creation of God, but so are you. Well, Samson was supernaturally empowered by the Holy Spirit. Well, you can't tear a lion apart, but you have the Holy Spirit too. Samson lost his focus. Get her because she looks good for me. You don't have to lose your focus. So refocus on your purpose. And then secondly, and we'll be done, bridle your passions. Now let's define passion. A strong enthusiasm. We could do with much more strong enthusiasm for Jesus. One of the very first things I was taught about preaching was this. Every sermon needs three things. Truth, clarity, and passion. You can preach a sermon that's full of truth and as doctrinally straight as a gun barrel and dry as dust. There has to be passion. You can admittedly get carried away and say, step away from the pulpit before you hurt yourself or someone else. But passion is a great character trait when it's biblically directed. Samson was a passionate person, but it was so often misdirected. His greatest energy and his best years were put into sexual immorality. He married a Philistine, excuse me, he had a Philistine harlot. He married a Philistine wife, and he almost certainly had extramarital sex with Delilah. Folks, when you have sex outside of marriage, whether you're living together, thinking about getting married, which is sin, or the proverbial one-night situation, I'm trying to be discreet, God views that as sin just as much as he did 100 years ago. Sex physiologically and spiritually binds you to one another. When you violate that, you do damage to your soul. There are consequences when you violate the wise and kind boundaries God put around sex. The beauty of God's grace is that if you have done that, he can and will restore your soul. He will completely forgive your sin. And as David said in Psalm 51, created me a clean heart. He does that. God graciously allowed Samson to fulfill his purpose at the end of his life, but there were consequences. He was captured, his eyes gouged out, he became a grinder in their prison, and he died fulfilling his purpose. So you have passion for something today. Is it harnessed towards God's purpose for your soul? Have you ever noticed that Highly successful athletes, I mean the, the top-tier ones, they often leave a legacy of adultery, fatherless children, divorce, STDs, unpaid child support, and domestic violence. I was exercising recently when I doc, uh, watched a documentary of an old-school NBA great. I won't say the name, but they jokingly asked a teammate why he wasn't as good as this great player, and he said, because I have a life outside of basketball. The guy I'm referring to passionately ate, drank, and slept basketball. He became one of the all-time greats, and you wouldn't want to emulate his personal life. And I won't even start on the NFL. I'm talking about the Chiefs, too. If we don't bridle our passions, <clears throat> we miss God's purpose for our soul. And the truth is, we can get caught up in this culture, and we get drunk with passion for the wrong things. I mean, it's fine to enjoy these things that God has given us, but don't get drunk on it. 
God has given us passion in order to discharge the purpose he has for our soul. We need to redirect our passion to that purpose. And you say, but everything and everyone competes for my time today. How do I sort through this? There's a great verse that if you practically apply it, really use it as a guide, it'll never steer you wrong. It'll give you peace, it'll remove guilt, it'll glorify God, it'll satisfy your soul, <clears throat> excuse me, it'll unify your marriage, and you're saying, give me a bottle of it now. Tara and I have used this as a decision-making guide many times in life. It's Matthew 6.33. Seek ye first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Run your decisions through that verse. So often the kingdom is third or fourth down the list, and even then we can view it selfishly. Well, this is what I want to do, so I'll justify it spiritually. But the question is, what will it do to and for the kingdom, and will it build righteousness into my soul? And because our passions can be misdirected, God frequently challenges about the direction of our passion. I'll just give you one example. Joshua said, choose this day whom you will serve everyone. Serve something or someone with passion. It may be a hobby or a habit, but it's done with passion. And as a Christian, you're free to biblically direct your passion. There's nothing holding you back. Romans 8, 2, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. You're free from sin's grip and the passions of the flesh that will sidetrack you. And the flesh also sidetracks men and women when it comes to salvation. Now, there's really only one reason a person never comes to Jesus, and it's pride. To be saved, you have to humble yourself before Almighty God. You have to confess and believe that you're not even close enough to enter heaven. And you say, well, I'm better than Samson was. Well, you're using the wrong measuring tape. God's tape measure says we all fall short. The Bible says we all Sin And that sin separates us from God. That sin also causes our physical death. And then the Bible speaks of the second death, which refers to hell. The consequences of sin are grave. Thankfully, the Bible says God demonstrates his own love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus bore that second death by dying on the cross. He took God's wrath for our sin. In our place, he experienced the elements of hell on that cross. So Romans chapter 10 explains how to be saved. This is not a formula, it's an explanation. Jesus said, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. In other words, if you can say and believe that Jesus is the master of your life, that he and his word now make your decisions, not you. If you can do that and you believe in your heart, that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Your heart is your soul. It's the very essence of your being. If you genuinely believe the Bible's testimony about Jesus is true, that he rose again, that he is now your master, now you're ready to be saved. Well, how should I be saved? Well, just ask him to save you. Whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But salvation is not a one-time prayer. It's giving your life to Jesus, and it's a work of God that initially, continually, gradually and gloriously changes your soul and it starts with faith believe in Jesus so if you would say I want Jesus then believe him now repent or turn away from your sin and then trust in him and by no means please stop there because we love you again you have people here rooting for you so let us know
If that's something you've done today, you complete a card, grab us after church, me, Kirk, Nathan, anyone, and talk to them so we can help you take the next steps, which are baptism, and then we want to encourage you and show you how to live the Christian life. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for this time together in your word. I pray that we would refocus on our soul, the development of our soul, each one of us. There's so much noise in this world, and I pray that you would give us a, a hunger for refocusing on the health of our soul. Put us in a constant recognition also of the purpose you have for our soul. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to worship. I thank you for your promise that you are making us more like Jesus, maybe even when we don't see it. Thank you. And I thank you that you give us spiritual gifts and you show us how to use those to edify one another. I thank you for the opportunity to do ministry, to point other people to Jesus. And I thank you for a church that has a heart for ministry and a heart for you. And then I pray for each one of us. You would give us the courage, the strength, and the wisdom to talk to people about Jesus. Give us divine appointments, Lord. And then keep our passions bridled. Lord, I confess I struggle with that sometimes. I want to put my energy into things that aren't all that fruitful. Redirect our desires into following you and loving you. And I pray for anyone here who's never been saved, that today they would recognize that you love them, that your grace is upon them, and you're calling them to yourself. And I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Church, would you stand?